0: You're listening to Divinely Curious, the podcast for mystics, seekers, and the spiritually curious. I'm Heather Augusta. Join me and my co-host, Emily Rose, for spirited discussions about what's capturing our curiosity and what we're discovering along the way. Hey, Emily.
1: Hey, Heather. (laughs) Would
0: you like to talk about shamanism today? I sure would.
1: Let's do it.
0: Yay. Okay. So today we've invited on David Chi as our guest to talk to us about shamanism. Let me tell you a little bit about David Chi. He is a shamanic worker and folk magic practitioner who primarily engages in traditional North Asian forms of shamanism. He is primarily of Manchurian descent, but also can trace ancestry to Mongolian, Chinese, Korean, as well as a little Tonga Siberian and ancient Central Asian Turkic heritage as well. Raised in a household that incorporated both Southeast Siberian and North Chinese practices, David has dedicated his spare time to the study of the spiritual traditions of his ancestors and of greater Eurasia. Recognized as a Sangasha, Ongoltengateri, I'm sure I said that incorrectly, a future shaman prior to initiation among both Mongolian and Korean shamans. David's practices are deeply rooted in spiritual work with which ancestral and land spirits are called to empower all workings. David's readings incorporate a combination of tarot, ruins, bones, jaw harp, as well as Mongolian stone divination. David is also the author of the upcoming book, Spirit Voices the Mysteries and Magic of North Asian Shamanism. We are so happy to have you here, David. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Can can you first tell me, how do you pronounce the Ongotenger?
2: It's Ongotengertere. So basically, it it refers to someone who has Ongotenger, which is kind of the Mongolian fancy way of saying shamanic spirit. So ungutengerte is someone who has shamanic spirits but has not gone through the formal initiation
0: yet. Oh, interesting. Okay. <sighs> so the reason why I wanted to bring you on is I actually heard m- numerous times and um first of all your perspective and experience on shamanism is unique to a lot of Americans, I think, a lot of the Western brains. It's traditional and it's just refreshing to hear not only your perspective traditionally on shamanism, but also your modern perspective on shamanism too. So I really wanted to just kind of discuss shamanism because a lot of us in the world of like self-help and healing and spirituality, especially in the United States, we're talking about doing shamanic work and doing shamanic practices. And then there's a lot of self-proclaimed like Western shamans. So you are the perfect person to help us unpack this. And I really, really appreciate your insight on this. So let's start by asking you, what is the traditional true definition of shamanism? What did it look like traditionally? And what does it look like now?
2: You know, and it's in itself a complicated topic, even from the traditional perspective in terms of the definition of shaman. And, you know, there's been many definitions thrown around. I think the the one that people in the past have generally liked to say is that they serve as, you know, the bridge between the human and the spirit worlds, but that's pretty broad. It can mean anything. If we really dive into the specifics, and I think this is the best specific one that I have found, a shaman is a person who was chosen by shamanic spirits when they are born to act as the bridge, in which case they are empowered to do two things. One is that the shamanic spirits may um, possess them in trance and serve as an aid or a guide to the community to pass on wisdom and to perform teachings and workings that were from ancient times. And two, and I think this is going to sound very familiar to people who are familiar with quote-unquote shamanic journey is the shamanic spirits can then escort the shaman soul into various parts of the spirit world to perform to essentially perform workings that can only happen there that cannot happen in the physical world many parts of this seem familiar to different peoples because different cultures around the world and different modern cultures have aspects of that but it's really what makes a shaman in our specific definition is a combination of those things, including that initial part about being chosen by spirits at birth. And so they have to work very intimately with that spirit. And that spirit allows them to go into deliberate, repeatable, controlled trance states for those Mm -hmm. things that I talked about. And another thing, and this is actually something that I feel like it's very limiting to shamans compared to other spiritual practitioners. But because these specific spirits chose you when you were born, you have no choice but to work with those spirits intimately, which means essentially you cannot be a non-spiritual practitioner. You have to work with these spirits. And even if you are a spiritual practitioner, you can't choose not to work with these spirits individually. You can develop relationships with other spirits, other gods, but these are your spirits that you must work with. And the thing is, especially in traditional societies, spirits tend to get offended very easily. So it's also a, a big part of our work is also just appeasing them. A lot of my work is actually just giving offerings to them so that when I do need their help for more intense shamanic work, they'll be able to help and you know ease the process.
0: So I just want to delineate. There's like shamanic yeah. practice and then there's actual shamans.
2: Yeah, so I, I, I'm sorry, I kind of forgot about the second part of your question, uh, which I think you're alluding to. So in terms of shamanic practice and what does it look like in the West? Well, in traditional societies, there are teachings and their practices are only open to initiate shamans. And then there are teachings of practices that are open to everyone else. So the way that we'd almost describe it is that It is possible to do, you know, shamanic first aid, I guess, by anyone who needs, you know, that type of working for themselves, but a true shaman can only perform what is the equivalent of, you know, a surgical practice, you know, something that requires very specificity, very intense training for. And so... What tends to happen is even traditional societies, generally non-shamans are still taught some level of spiritual first aid from the shamanic cosmology, in which they're able to do some workings for themselves. What I have seen in the West is that in about the 60s or 70s, this guy called Michael Harner came along mm-hmm. and basically tried to learn Traditional practices from multiple cultures around the world, including those from Siberia, al- along with I think South America was a big part of what he was putting together. Yeah. And he essentially tried to create a template called core shamanism, which he actually took out the uh, cultural components of those practices and essentially gave it a, a non culture specific framework. And then he created this core shamanism practice in which people can sort of overlay their own, you know, mythologies, their own cultures, their own things on top of it and follow that formula. That's where actually the term shamanic journey comes from. It's in a sense, it's an imitation of what we call spirit flights. And I'll be honest, traditional shamans are have very mixed opinions about this, because on one hand, is it technically cultural appropriation? Yes. But at the same time, does it create a framework for non shamans from non shamanic cultures to be able to do enhanced spiritual work technically also yes so the way the way that we see it in the west especially in in modern times is from what i have observed from people who practice techniques from core shamanism and shamanic journey they're using almost like a divination or an enhanced divination sense where they're going into the spirit world they're trying to form a relationship with in particular spirits to gather information and in insight. And that's pretty much it. From our perspective, that is technically fine if it stops right there. Because when we go into the spirit, we actually don't casually go into the spirit world or go into spirit flight. We traditionally see it as dangerous. And that's because when we go, we don't go for gathering insight or clarity. We go for a purpose that cannot be accomplished in the physical world. And that might include fighting you know hostile spirits that might include you know like bribing a spirit if they if they are holding another person's like soul as hostage. It might include, you know, like like doing some trickster work. So a lot of traditional shamans when they see modern shamanic practitioners, they say they do shamanic journey. It always gets us a little nervous. But if they're only going to gather information and they're working with a spirit entity that they already have a very close relationship with, we're like, okay, you know, just you know, Don't don't go any farther than that. And I think in the West, they have a concept called power animals, which I think is kind of an interpretation of certain spirits in animal form. I don't know too much about that practice, but if they are forming a close relationship with that spirit to the sense that that spirit is able to protect them when they're in the spirit world, then sure. But if they're able to, you know, gather insight that really helps with their life, their spiritual hygiene, then you know, can't argue against that. But I guess just in terms of comparing that to traditional practice, it is something that gets us a little nervous.
0: Mm-hmm. So uh, you're nervous because of the safety issues. Very also, much so. I mean, there's the appropriation part of it, but also it sounds like it's the safety issue that you're you're discussing.
2: Yeah, exactly. So like, you know, the funny thing is in traditional societies, I don't even think they know what the concept of cultural appropriation is. I think (laughs) as me being an American, I understand what it is, but I think for them, the way that they're seeing it, they're very much seeing it from a safety issue. They're seeing it from like, is it, is it worth putting yourself at this much risk to get that much benefit? So it's almost like a cost benefit analysis. And they, and so they're actually seeing, is this person doing this practice in a way That won't invite any other harm. Like, why are they trying to do these things? And in a way, we're actually glad that if they're going into the spirit world, they're not going very far. And also, they're not doing the trance possession, because you look at any tradition around the world that has trance possession, you need a, a certain amount of training and teachings to get to that level. And for something like a journey, often if they're not going very far, they're just going to gather insights or they're going to a specific deity, which I see a lot of witches do to gain insights, to try and get a little bit more of a clear connection. Then the the implication is that that deity that you have that relationship with will protect you. And from that angle, then, you know, then sure, you know, you do you. <laughs>
1: So when it comes to journey work, cause we just did a whole episode on journeying and what that's like, like, first of all, I know journey can look different from every angle. And I feel like we just don't have words for these things. I know whenever I'm trying to describe something, I just literally describe what I'm doing and don't give it a name because I don't know what to call this. There isn't an accurate name for it. I know a lot of people say that they're like, shamanic practitioners and when I've gotten trainings from things some people use that phrase and some people don't like that phrase and so what what is your take on that term like shamanic practitioner if someone's not calling themselves like a shaman like what is your what's your take on that
2: I mean I'm personally completely fine with the term shamanic practitioner because what that tells me is that you are a practitioner who has studied a couple of shamanic methods in a hopefully in a in a safe and appropriate way within traditional societies when we try to you know speak in English the way that we would describe non-shamans that still do spiritual practice within our culture we would actually call them a shamanist so Mm. basically it's almost like Saying describing someone as, you know, a pagan or a Christian, basically someone who follows that spiritual cosmology and belief system, even if they don't do that level of work. So we would say shamanist versus shaman. So, and I think shamanic practitioner, I mean, generally when I hear the word shamanic practitioner, the first thing that comes to me is someone who has studied a Western method that probably stems from core shamanism. And I kind of just leave it at that. But generally I'm I think it's fine if someone calls themselves a shamanic practitioner. I don't see anything wrong with that. It's, it's, if they call themselves a shaman, that kind of implies that they've been initiated. And again, going back to the safety issue, we consider it to be very dangerous for someone to try to act like a shaman where when they are not one, because by doing so, they could make themselves a beacon for all types of ent- spiritual entities that they might not be equipped to handle someone who basically you know tries to imitate you know like the work of actual shamans like you don't know whose attention you're gonna get if you do that
0: yeah it's like trying to practice medicine or like do surgery and you haven't had the training or anything like that I mean, there's a lot of physical world overlaps as well in that
1: so I guess this kind of leads to the question what are the duties and responsibilities of a shaman like what does that look like like someone who is a true shaman what is what are their duties and responsibilities well
2: you know it, it's constantly changing but kind of what stay consistent is that they are in a way they serve as a like spiritual doctor or I guess healer of the community uh generally when Even in traditional societies or cultures that do have shamanism within its culture, people go to shamans when something is going wrong in their life or when they are sick in some ways. Obviously, we would always recommend going to seek a medical professional, but we would do our divination to see if to basically try to form our own diagnosis of what might be going wrong. And if it's something within the spiritual aspect like if it's like a spirit-led sickness, is this something that we can help heal? Is this something that we can we have in our capacity to try to treat? So, in many ways, we in terms of day-to-day, that's kind of what shamans serve as. But but ultimately, the shaman's role in the community is almost like that of preserving the cultural and spiritual memory of the culture. Oftentimes mm-hmm. the shaman serves as the I guess, the repository of, you know, knowledge and wisdom from the past that the rest of society might have moved on from. And in many ways, the shaman, on a day-to-day basis, they serve the role of a doctor. But in many ways, they actually serve as the memory of, you know, ancient practices. And in ancient times, they were heavily involved in politics as well. They would actually, they would serve as advisors to to leaders. And they would actually serve as, you know, like representatives of communities. If certain villages or certain tribes got into some kind of conflict, they would be the one that's doing, you know, the remediation. So essentially, they used to have a lot more leadership abilities and actually their role played very heavily in, you know, the political climates. But in modern days, it's really more of, you know, the spiritual doctor and also just serving as the source of of knowledge.
0: Seems smart to have a shaman to work with to make political decisions and to work uh, amongst other groups of people and stuff like that. Yeah, Chinggis
2: Khan during the Mongol Empire, he always had two shamans by his side. They're from two separate traditions of Mongolian shamanism, but he always had two at his side that would advise him on essentially how to conquer the world.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you think a shaman that would work with like political issues and community issues would be the same kind of shaman that would do... I mean, would that be the same? Are there different types of shaman traditionally? Oh, yeah. Were they where they specialize?
1: Oh, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It's What's really interesting is that within certain traditions, especially in Mongolia, they would actually have something called Black shamans versus white shamans. So they would actually be different traditions and they would work with, they often work with different spirits, but but the Black shamans were actually more involved with the political affairs, whereas the white shamans dealt more with you know like internal affairs within the community and so they did have separate roles of course every tribe every culture is a little bit different and just to clarify when I mentioned black shamans it doesn't mean that they're evil in any way it just it, it's just a uh, representative of the type of spirits that they work with so they, the, the spirits that they work with tend to be a little bit more wrathful but wrathful in a beneficial way if that makes any sense
0: yeah actually this brings me to an interesting que- question like you know, there are certain worldviews that seem to be kind of universal among mm-hmm. shaman from different parts of the world. But there are there certain worldviews that are really unique to North Asian shaman and specifically perspectives that you really appreciate?
2: In terms of worldviews, that's very interesting. Like I think a lot of different cultures, we do believe the concept of the three realms. And oftentimes, those three realms actually have sub realms so the mongolians for example they believe that the upper world or the heavens that there's 99 layers or 99 different realms and then multiple different realms of the lower world as well each one for a different purpose but i think every culture is different how they interpret that but i think that's pretty you know universal to the rest of the world as well i think what makes us a little bit unique is we are in a way we're low-key fire worshipers in the sense that we have and of such an elevated importance on fire in that we see fire as a direct portal and direct access to the spirits and the fire itself has its own spirit as well. So we actually perform fire ceremonies, actually a good chunk of our ceremonies all incorporate fire. It's a type of fire ceremony. What we would actually feed the household, what we call the household fire spirit in order to strengthen our connection to our spirits as well as, you know, strengthen the the household and the family as well. And I and I, I don't know about what other cultures in the rest of the world have a fire worship aspect, but at least within Asia, this is pretty unique to the North in that we actually, in a way, we worship fire in order to be able to have worship of our ancestors and even in some cases the land spirits as well.
1: Interesting. That is really interesting. I I kind of identify mostly just as a witch, and I always think if there's a ritual, if I didn't burn anything, did the ritual happen? I mean, that's really one of the question. So I can appreciate that. I'm like, when do I get to burn something when I'm <laughs> reading through it? Because that there's just something there's like a release. And there's just a lot of power, so that makes a lot of sense. That kind of leads into the question because. A lot of people in in the witching world, they throw around the term shaman. And so how does a shaman differ from like a witch or a healer? Like, and I know you've already described like what a shaman does. And so we could kind of see that. But I think in the witching world, there's things that seem the same or similar, but just aren't, right? And so I was wondering if you kind of point that out.
2: In some ways, I actually think witches have more freedom than shamans in their spiritual practice. From what I've observed and my interaction with people within witchcraft, I mean, within both, it's almost like it's a relationship oriented practice where we do have to build relationships to deities, to entities. But I think within one well, of the biggest differences is, is that witches, the deities that they work with, the entities they work with, are those that make themselves available. To have a relationship with. So a lot of, you know, like the pagan gods or whatever, they, they've made themselves available to people like witches and then witches then try to connect with them and basically build a relationship over time. And so then that deity or that spiritual entity will then empower them in all of their witchcraft practices. Now with shamanism, the funny thing is there, there are a lot of deities and gods within general North Asia, but just the way that The cultures and mythology have developed, a lot of them don't involve themselves too heavily in human affairs. So, in a sense, they are quote unquote less available. So, this is kind of why many cultures that have ancestral worship, a lot of it is because the ancestors are the ones that are available. And then the ancestors can then work with, you know, even higher beings themselves. And then that's how you know, spiritual work gets done. And in shamanic practice, shamanic practice allows a way to essentially directly engage with, you know, shamanic spirits who then are able to make things happen. And then, as I mentioned, with shamans, they don't have a choice, right? So the shamanic spirits that have chosen the shaman, they have to work with them. So the relationship isn't about building a relationship as it is maintaining a good relationship and that's one of the key differences. And of course I think in, in terms of actual, you know, like magical practice with a lot of, you know, witchcraft practices there's a little bit more sovereignty and self-power that's kind of combined with whatever power is invoked. With with shamans, well when we actually do, you know, magical workings, we put ourselves in a trance state and are often either partially or completely possessed by our spirits. And for us, we actually recognize that until we are able to reach a level further up, where oftentimes we're relying primarily on our spirits power. Um, For some of my elders, they've reached a state where they've built enough personal power that they don't need to invoke their spirits as much. But especially in the beginning stages, it's kind of recognized that we ourselves don't have that much power to use. It has to be primarily through our spirits power. So, so even when we we want to do things for like, you know, like blessing or protection, we have to call our own spirits to then, you know, enter whatever is like, if some, if we're empowering an object to be a protected talisman, we're actually requesting our spirits to put some of their power into the object itself, and not so much us, you know, like blessing it ourselves, at least not until we get to a certain advanced level. So I guess I think that's what I would consider to be one of the biggest differences. What I really appreciate about, you know, witchcraft practices is the ability that you can form deep relationships with any number of spiritual entities and gods that do make themselves available. And this is kind of why like oftentimes when, when I do learn things about witchcraft and I do enter, you know, some witchcraft circles, that's kind of one of the only ways that I have of meeting gods and spirits from other places and other cultures and, and basically see what the dynamic is. I've actually had instances in the past where I've approached, and this was before I discovered what my current path is supposed to be. I've gone to witchcraft rituals and encountered the presence of various pagan gods whether it's bridget or hecate and they've actually have respectfully like said to me like thank you for being here but what they're doing is not what you're supposed to be doing we'll be there to help you but we're you're not supposed to be like dedicated to us and so they've kind of like you know sent like treated me as a guest and then sent me on my way going like you're supposed to go that way
0: so if someone is born into a culture that doesn't have the elders and the, the training and anything available to them, but they have been chosen by spirits, what it, have you seen that looks like for somebody? If they've been chosen by spirits and say they were born in the United States and like there is no access to that culture, what happens to people like that?
2: So this is a complicated Question because the answer can vary. The way that we often say is that if they have the right karma, then they will be able to encounter someone who can identify them and basically diagnose them as having shamanic spirits, who can then lead them on sort of the path that they're supposed to take. But then on the flip side, we also say if someone does not have, you know, the proper, the right karma, then unfortunately, in a way, it becomes a curse where those spirits will constantly try to get their attention, but they have no idea what's going on. And what happens is that they it really does decrease the quality of their life. One thing I will say is that most of the time, a person who has traumatic spirits is someone from that culture because shamanic spirits tend to be ancestral. 90% of the time, it's either a past ancestor who was a shaman themselves, and now they're serving as a shamanic spirit, or it's another spirit, whether it's a land spirit or another spirit that is bound to that bloodline. So in the majority of the cases, it is someone from that culture. But that being said, I have encountered people of European descent who either have distant, you know, like like North Central Asian, North Asian bloodlines and have been called, or if they're from a, from a family that has had continuous spiritual practice and one of the ancestors was like, you know what? I want to, you know, intensify this. I want to get this even more closer. So then they tr- basically, in a way, in the, the way that they kind of have in their culture, they choose someone to basically work with intimately through you know direct trance work and to the point of trance possession doesn't happen a lot, but I have seen a couple cases happen where actually I know this one guy. He's a younger British guy who's one of, who's had ancestors who were spiritual practitioners from you know the UK culture, some of British cultures, and one of them wanted to work a lot more intensely, and he was found by a Mongolian shaman who was a friend of mine, who basically then. Was like you're not supposed to practice shamanism the way we are, but you're supposed to do something along the line. So let me do like a form of initiation for you, and you can you know learn from us, and then you can do that practice with your ancestors. That um, makes
0: a lot of sense. It seems like yeah. the the spirits would first of all they choose someone based on their ability to access the training and things like that, and then and then they would help to kind of get person a person in. They would the definitely places. try to help. One
2: thing I will add, and what I kind of implied is that in order for a practice to be considered shamanism, you, you had to have had multiple generations of spiritual practice at the least. So if like, for example, and this is a hypothetical, if you've come from a family that has never had spiritual practice, even in ancient times, you were just, they were just, you know, like, like secular, like blacksmiths or secular, you know, farmers and spiritual practice never happened. And you're the first one there's not going to be a possibility of a shamanic practice until maybe several generations after you. If you're the first one to do spiritual practice, then, you know, your descendants will continue to do spiritual practice. And then usually at some point, shamanic practice could emerge. But for anyone to actually be engaging in that shamanic practice to, to the point where they're initiated as a shaman the implication is that there have been multiple generations of shaman or of spiritual practice already
0: this is a kind of a little bit of a random thing but have you witnessed because i've heard this before that a lot of times shaman you know when you are chosen by spirits it often is accompanied by some sort of like chronic sickness. illness yeah yeah shaman sickness okay yeah. so that is a thing that is a real thing <laughs>
2: That is a thing. And I kind of alluded to this, but it's basically the spirit's way of trying to get your attention. Essentially, they push you to your limits and it could be physical, it could be psychological, mental, spiritual. It can come in any form, but basically it's the spirit's trying to get your attention so that you will go to a shamanic elder who can then diagnose and tell you what's going on. And usually once that happens, it it lessens a lot. And then once you go through initiation, the sickness is then gone because the spirits don't need to push you anymore. And so that's kind of what I was referring to earlier when someone who's not, who's chosen, but not able to find a teacher, their quality of life decreases. That's actually what I'm referring to is that shamanic sickness, basically like coming at them for their entire life, because that is possible. There, there are instances where this is, Not that common, but there are instances where the spirit will push you so far that your body cannot handle it and then the person dies. And there have been instances where the person loses their sanity. There are stories, even in traditional societies, that people who have been struck by the sickness. They might one day just leave town and just kind of disappear and sort of wander the woods. And then like a couple of weeks later, they come back into town completely naked. Like it's, there's all (laughs) sorts, there's all sorts of these stories. Most of the time, for most people, it's, it, it has symptoms of mental disorders more often than not. Physical sickness can happen. It's not uncommon. It's just not as common as mental ones. But most of the time, it's basically, it comes in the form of you know, anxiety, paranoia, depression, even, but then it's usually accompanied with them hearing something, in which case people might even diagnose schizophrenia, but basically they're hearing something or they are seeing something. And usually in traditional societies, they'll, they'll go to see a medical professional. If the medical professional can't figure out what's going on, they'll then go see the closest shaman that they can find who can then, you know, tell them what's really going on.
0: Yeah. That's so interesting. It's good to know that is an actual thing that, that, that is I a heard thing, about, yes. not, well, not a myth.
2: Yeah, luckily, mine weren't that bad. I, I actually, for a lot of people, just thought I was going through intense teenage angst. But it's, <laughs> but it was kind of that like anxiety, depression, paranoia. It was just like, you know, those things.
1: And that was my question is like, how did you kind of become awakened to the fact that this was your path? And what did your initiation look like?
2: So I've had multiple sicknesses at different times of my life. The first time, and I think this happens with most people, is happens when you are around, you know, puberty or hitting puberty. That was actually when I started having this craving for spiritual and magical practice as well. And I think as an American, I go online and what do I find? I find witchcraft and paganism. So I kind of went into that world for a bit and I... And it actually, the sickness subsided a bit. It didn't completely go away, but it did subsided because I think at least I was doing spiritual work.
0: Yeah. And then
2: it came again in episodes during college. And then it really came after college. I think most people would call that period, you know, approaching Saturn's return. I think a lot of people in the West would say, but it was actually around that time that I did find people online who were engaged in traditional practice. And through that, I actually found... Um, initiated Mongolian shamans and elders. A lot of them are on Facebook and Instagram now. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, more Facebook, not so much Instagram. But, but I did find them. And I actually, the way that my spirits panned out, it's actually kind of brilliant. In 2016, my company sent me to work in Asia for a couple of years. And oh. obviously I did a lot of traveling. I was convinced that my spirits had something to do with it. And I was able to go to Mongolia several times and... One of my close friends, who is a Mongolian shaman, they're very talented. She basically diagnosed my issue. She and her husband, they're both shamans. They diagnosed my issues. They figured out what was going on with me. And they gave me practices and tools for me to enhance my practice and something I'm very grateful for. And uh, the thing is, I actually asked them about initiation. They're like, oh yeah, you have to be initiated. We can't be the ones to do it. And I was like, why not? And it turns out, her particular tribe and my ancestors, like people or tribes, were enemies, actually quite bitter enemies. And a lot of her shamanic spirits were shamans from that time period. So they're like, we don't want you to die. Our spirits might try to kill you and we don't want you to die. So we can't be the ones to do it. So (laughs) actually where I am right now is I'm technically not formal, even though I've been given teachings and a lot of techniques, a lot of tools, I'm technically not initiated in the formal sense. Basically, where I am right now is that I have to find the proper teacher and the proper elder to give me the formal initiation, in which case then what will happen is that then I will be under their tutelage and learn specifically from that tradition And I don't know if this is kind of jumping ahead, but basically my book that is coming out is going to be talking about many, many different traditions within North Asia, including that of my friend. But basically when I do get initiated, I will have to be focused on one of them. So right now my practice is still a little bit broad. It's basically based off of what the various elders that I've met with have taught me.
0: So do you think that, I mean, do you foresee as you begin to evolve into that that your responsibilities and duties of your daytime day job and stuff like that are gonna have to start to shift like how much of a life of people do you foresee that this could be for you
2: you know it's it's different for every person it's different for because it depends on the spirit on those particular spirits and right now, my spirits—they're—they're they're very tolerant of me in my day job. But actually, a friend of mine who is a traditional Korean shaman, she was actually an accountant. She had to give up all of that to dedicate, you know, full time to to the spirits and to seeing clients. And so, I don't know if it's going to be that intense for me. I feel like at some point, my the my day job will have to take a smaller part, but, but hopefully not entirely gone, but just a smaller part of my day-to-day as the spirits demand me to see, you know, more clients such as that. But yeah, I mean, we'll see what happens. I really don't know what's going to happen in that sense. So for that reason, I mean, just on a personal note, I've kind of been studying up on ways of doing passive income. So the, the income line will be a little bit stable. So I've been looking into, you know, things like real estate and also like my current book, which probably will be passive income of some sort. So, you know, just getting ready and getting that aspect up a little bit so I can still have a pretty good quality of life.
1: Yeah, We're- We're both entrepreneurs, so that's where you're getting us. Like, hey, are you gonna (laughs) do this whole time? That's what you're getting from
0: us. (laughs) Have you witnessed or seen like some people's spirits are like more helpful in helping people in these regards and the practical, mundane things, and some are like not so helpful. They they kind of rely on the shaman themselves. Like, are there varying degrees of like helpfulness in the spirit world?
2: I would definitely say so. Definitely the ancestral spirits tend to be a little bit more understanding than the spirits who've never lived as a human before, yeah. for one. But then there, there are ancestral spirits who are like, I did this full time. Why can't you? And, you know, those like curmudgeon, crotchety, like old <laughs> people, you know, basically it's kind of like that. So, yeah, it's it's very different. And Even, even within spiritual work, every spirit is a little bit different. There is actually one tribe of reindeer herders. Their shamans are actually very famous for their cursing work because their spirits are very are very much specialized in cursing. To the degree that I've even my friend actually told me that she has one curse spirit who basically rears its head up every time someone pisses her off. <laughs> To the point where she has to control her temper because otherwise her spirit will come out and, you know, lash out at someone. Because spirits very much, they, they have autonomy of their own. They will act on their own sometimes, whether or not you know it. So it's something that the shaman has to manage. You know, they have to you know take responsibility for what their spirits do, even when they, they didn't ask for it. So, you know, some spirits are a lot more gentle. And then some were basically like warriors who are looking for that battlefield. So, you know, it's it base it all depends. Luckily, the, my main spirit is actually this like grandmother type spirit. So I, I love it. You know, it's very gentle. But I have been told, my friend actually told me, you have another spirit coming up. So get ready for that. And I'm like, oh, okay,
0: great. <laughs> Thanks for the heads up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's a lot like there's a lot of parallels in like your spirits as there are in families too. Like we don't, we don't get to pick our families and sometimes they bring out stuff in us and they do things that we kind of have to take responsibility for. And it's like a spirit family.
2: I mean, yeah, it's it's kind of a broad generalization, but it's kind of true that pretty much all Asian cultures are extremely family oriented, not in the sense of big family, but close to the family members, and it's and within shamanic practice, it very much translates this way too. That that's another reason why the fire aspect I talked about is very important because the household fire spirit is is seen as the one the spirit that holds the family together, and we and that's the spirit that we have to maintain in a very strong way. So there is a very big family aspect even to your spirits who oftentimes are your ancestor or our specific ancestors.
1: I married into a Vietnamese family so I'm learning about the the tight-knit family culture there and that's always been interesting from my most of my families come from like divorced and you know like all these different little sects so that's been really interesting and a really rich part of my my life I'm very fortunate to have but I actually wanted to dig into your book that you have coming out and I saw it's available for pre-order on my little internet snooping so why don't you just talk to us about about your book that's coming out and like kind of how you approach this very large topic and also rarely written about subject of North Asian shamanism.
2: Sure. And I guess the one way of kind of segueing you know, the book plus what we talked about before is part of the reason I want to write this book is because there are a lot of misconceptions about the word shaman. I think for a lot of people, especially in the Americas, they see the word as basically describing any indigenous spiritual practitioner, in which case it is incorrect to refers specifically to traditions that kind of followed what I talked about before, you know, those I guess that definition. So what that means is that even in terms of, you know, cultures and in indigenous parts, you know, the Americas, Africa, even Europe, it doesn't apply to every single culture. It applies to some of them, but not all of them. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is why I stick to this definition is because the word shaman is of North Asian origin. The word actually we pronounce it salmon, It has that specific definition. That's why we stick to it very closely. And I think anytime someone, you know, looks up the word shaman on the internet or, you know, whatever resources they can find, they will say, oh, the word comes from like Siberian origin, and that's kind of where it stops. And then nothing more is said about that. And so I think there is a a big lack of understanding of, you know, what that entails of what these cultures are, and basically why this word is even in use. So So basically, that's kind of what I try to do. I try to paint sort of a broad stroke on on pretty much all of North Asia because their practices, while they have regional differences, are very similar. And, you know, most people, they've probably heard of something like Siberian shaman or Mongolian shaman, but they don't have much conception of what that means. So what I try to do, I don't go very in-depth. I basically, I'm I'm very comprehensive, but not like too in-depth in that I broadly describe what the various traditions of shamanism across Northern Asia are. So, you know, if there'll be something for, you know, someone who's not very familiar as well as someone who has familiarity. All the current resources out on the market today they go very in depth on a specific culture or specific tradition to the point where someone who's not familiar with them, they'll read it and it's going to go over their head. It's going to be confusing. Yeah. It's going to be academic. It's going to be dry. So I try to make this a little bit more, you know, personable, a little bit more accessible, more friendly to the readers. You know, these are the traditions of the Mongolic peoples. These are the traditions of the Turkic peoples, and then these are the traditions of you know other groups in Siberia and the Manchuria region of China. And so I, I kind of want to celebrate what about these practices makes them shamanism while also highlighting the various regional differences. And of course, I also include chapters just on you know broad cosmology. A lot of them have very similar or shared cosmology. So I talk a little bit about the cosmology. I talk about different types of shamans, the different tools that are used. A lot of them use very, very similar tools actually, which is something I found remarkable. And then the last chapter is actually just some, you know, like practical information like that people can apply themselves. They want to enhance their spiritual practice, what we do for, you know, cleansing, what we do for blessing. I include actually two rituals in there, the offering prayer ceremony, which is basically a ceremony of giving offerings while also making prayers. And then basically my version of a fire ceremony as well that I kind of alluded to several times that people can, you know, practice themselves. Those practices are actually the open practices that I designed in a way that would be safe for non shamans So this book, you know, it's, I, I think it really came about because I realized that there wasn't a good resource that was like a compendium of the different things. And there wasn't a good resource that basically paints the broad stroke. There's a lot of academic resources. There's a lot of resources that go very deeply into a single tradition. And a lot of the other resources are also very expensive. Like some of my reference sources for the book I'm writing, they go for $200 easily.
0: Wow. I was going to ask if you felt like you wrote this book because you were inspired to write it because it needed to be written or like you didn't really have a choice. You had to write it.
2: The funny thing is this particular publisher, actually uh, the the editor there, Judica, she's actually been pinging me every year for five years since we first met. You're like, are you going to write a book? Are you going to write a book? Are you going to write a book? And every single time I was like, I don't know what to write about. I'm in my own journey. I don't know. what. And then I think it was during the pandemic when, you know, it was asked again, I started to evaluate. I basically looked at my bookshelf at the books I had and go like, what would be missing? And then I realized everything was on something specific. There's nothing that just kind of reaches out to all of them. So, what kind of, what I also envisioned for this book is that it's in a way if someone was interested in doing even further research, this book can be like a map to like, you know, pinpoint which direction they want to go in. And in in other ways, you know, I but the audience i made this for it's it's pretty broad i made this for people within shamanic practice who want to you know learn more about the roots about the sources where these come from and to learn about several new traditions i made this even for people who who are in the witchcraft tradition if they want to learn you know some of these you know spiritual practices and also i made this for asian americans who want to know more about their heritage even though not not a lot of Asian Americans necessarily have heritage from the northern regions of Asia, but it's it, it's going to share some similarities with the rest of Asia as well. At least it will inspire them to then maybe dig into their own culture. So I, I kind of wrote this for you know, all of these audiences and I the way I wrote it, I tried to make it as personable as I could to you know, help different people find points where they could relate to. And it's something that would be, you know, people would find insightful and in a way
0: easy to read. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to the book. Thank you.
1: Did we say the title of it? I have it pulled up here as Spirit Voices, The Mysteries and Magic of North Asian Shamanism. Um, yes, so that is,
2: that is the title. I had the concept of the book already, but then they're like, what's it called? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> so <laughs> so basically trying to come up with something that, you know, will catch people's eyes.
0: Are there any tools or practices that are really essential for you personally, like non-negotiable, you have to do these things in order to basically take care of your energetic hygiene. And I mean, obviously there's going to be things that you have to do to appease the spirits. What are the practical things that you have to do in order to maintain these relationships?
2: So basically it comes, the the things that, that take up the majority of what I actually do are offerings and cleansings. Offerings, I actually do like a like a somewhat formal offering prayer ceremony in Central Park, you know, once a month. But then I might also give like informally give offerings, you know, on other times. And then cleansing. It's very important that people be properly cleansed. And in the book, I actually talk about distinction between curses versus just pollution. Now, I think, especially in the West, most of the time we get into spiritual funk, people like to say, oh, I was cursed. More often than not, it's, you got, you were polluted. You you went somewhere, you t- talk with someone, and you bumped into spiritual pollution, and that's something that needs to be you know cleansed off because it can be equally damaging as curses. They're just a little bit less intentional. They're a little bit more random, and they get. And the reason why we say it needs to be done regularly is it's not even just. Like what people think in terms of, like, I I don't know how else to say it, but like someone, you could get pollution if someone gossips about you, actually. So we actually refer to that as gossip pollution. If someone close to you has passed, there could actually be death pollution. What that means is that when someone passes away, it kind of opens, it naturally opens sort of a portal between the our world and the world of the dead, I guess the broad way to say. And it's very easy for energy from that world to seep into ours, but it's not supposed to be here. It's very unnatural for energy from like for death energy to be around us. So it can actually cause a lot of problems. So someone who's who's had a friend or relative pass away, or even if they're passing through a graveyard, it could make them you know, vulnerable to death pollution, which, you know, it's not its not a huge problem immediately. It just has to be cleansed before it does become a problem. Even other pollutions, like anyone who's been through some type of trauma will usually tend to have a certain type of pollution. Addiction is a, can cause a type of spiritual pollution as well. And so this is why it's always good to just regularly can Conduct even simple, you know, like acts of cleansing, whether it is burning a sacred herb around you or taking a spiritual bath to, you know, cleanse it off of you or even doing something with fire. We actually, part of our fire thing, we do consider fire in a way to be the ultimate cleanser to the point where in ancient times I don't recommend this in ancient times people would actually press like red hot metal onto parts of their body to cleanse it I don't recommend I think this <laughs> goes along with cauterizing wounds do not recommend this but <laughs> if you do pass something an object like through a flame that actually cleanses it completely and this is why I do want to add a caveat if you have spiritual tools that actually have been empowered blessed or even have some of a spirit or deity's power in it do not pass that through a flame because that will kick them out too oh
0: that's really actually useful information
2: yeah you can use the smoke from an herb, but not like through fire itself
0: you know when you were saying that when there's death in our lives we lose someone like a, a relative or something like that and, and there's can be a transference of that energy Can that happen at birth, too, when it passes into a new life? Can energy transfer over that way, too? From
2: birth, not so much, because that's not so much a death energy. That is more of a life energy. So it's not not a death-oriented pollution. Even, actually, shamans have debates about hospitals, going, like, is it spiritually good? Is it spiritually not good? People die there, but people are also born there, and people get healed there. So... Generally, for when people are born, that's actually considered to be a great blessing. And there won't be any pollution that comes from that. But, and this goes into some some deeper concepts. If any of you have even paid attention to any types of, you know, the Asian traditions of, you know, giving birth and what they do, a lot of it is helping to preserve that life energy within the mother. Because if any transference does happen, it's that the mother does give a significant portion of her life energy to the child. So the mother actually becomes vulnerable.
0: Yeah, that make, that would make a lot of sense. These portals, yeah. these transitory times. Yeah.
1: And well, that's the thing I kind of noticed was that in like the whole birth process and like leading up to the birth of my child, I noticed that things felt far more open. I don't know how to describe, like things just felt open and it it wasn't necessarily like negative or positive feeling to me. It was just like, things just felt open. And then I noticed like, I would start getting messages more and more about my daughter that ended up coming in, you know, but that's a whole other thing. But I just noticed the portal was kind of open. So that was, that was interesting.
0: That's why I was asking Mm -hmm. if like, because bringing a life
1: into the world, it isn't like, there's a,
0: portal opening and a little being comes through. And then when somebody dies, a portal opens and the being goes out. <laughs> I didn't know if when those openings happen, if if the same sort of risk is there both on the birth version and the death version.
2: I mean, there's risk, but there's a different risk. It's not the death energy risk, it's other risk. Like it, it is a spiritually significant event. You know, it, it's it's almost like flashing lights suddenly, you know, whichever spirit's passing through, it might be like, ooh, flashing lights. Ooh, yeah. new, a new entity is being born. And also, and this is more for the child, I guess, but it's because it's such a new life. There's still sort of remnants from the old life that still has to, you know, make their way out. So Mm -hmm. there's some of that going on as well. And as a culture that believes in reincarnation, I don't know if anyone's come across this, what they consider to be a conflict, but as a culture that does ancestral worship, we work with specific ancestors because we have to be sure to work with the ancestors that have not reincarnated. Because otherwise, if you're giving offerings, this is why when I give ancestral offerings, I say to ancestral spirits, basically ancestors who are spirits. You don't want to give, necessarily get give to all ancestors because some of them might be a child right now. You don't want to mess with that.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's so funny. We actually just talked about that too, the, the concept that like, yeah, you can still be connected to an ancestor, but they might be back into a body. And how does that affect it? So is there more that you can tell us from your perspective about you know, what that looks like. So somebody gets incarnated into their next life. If you did try to give them offerings or connect with them, are you detracting from that person's life? Or is it just like confused energy that would be happening?
2: There's confusion, actually. I mean, at best, nothing happens. Basically, you're you're just giving offerings to empty space. But what can also happen is if you're invoking the memory of a person who was from their past life, you try to give offerings of it, you might basically be in a way, I don't want to say it this way, it sounds harsh, but it sounds like it, it could be you're forcing aspects of the past life into the current life such as you know like past life personalities or just things that were energetically with the past life you're those are supposed to be worked through but you're kind of bringing it into the current life which actually would affect the child so that would be the main thing so basically you're kind of messing with
0: the child's karma a little bit that's so interesting
1: hey curious folk it's emily rose here I wanted to pause this conversation to ask you, have you heard of Lenormand? You know, those sassy to the point cards that tell it like it is. If you're a tarot reader, oracle card reader, or someone who is simply curious about cardomancy and divination, Lenormand is a fabulous way to add specificity to a reading or it can be a standalone divinatory tool. For instance, you can ask Lenormand to show you the ins and outs of a potential romance, give you a heads up of what to expect for the year ahead, or even help you find lost objects. I'm telling you, this is a game changer that you just have to try out to believe. Have I piqued your curiosity? Inside my free three-lesson Lenormand mini-course, I'll teach you the basics along with a daily practice to get you started. You can take my free mini-course at emilyrosedivination.com slash mini-course. That's emilyrosedivination.com slash mini-course. See you inside.
2: Are you looking for a divination tool to help bring peace and clarity into your life? The Opal Oracle is a colorful 72-card deck that delivers empowering messages, beautiful symbols, and crystal-clear guidance. It's a helpful tool that nudges you in the direction of your greatest good. In this vibrant and joyful deck, readers can dive more deeply into a path of self-compassion and reveal to themselves the love that exists in the world around them. The Opal Oracle can serve as a standalone deck of cards or it can be used as a companion to other divination systems. Pick up your copy of the Opal Oracle card deck on Etsy or at opaloracle.com.
1: And now back to our curious conversation. Um, So I guess this kind of goes into if you're setting up like an ancestral altar and you're providing specific offerings to that ancestor, based on whatever you knew about their life and what they liked? It's like, oh, I I found out that my great-great-grandfather really liked this. And so I'm going to put this type of whiskey on my altar or whatever. Is that kind of what you're talking about a little bit with like attributing the personality and giving an offering to a personality or what what is your take on that?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I know a lot of people like to give offerings of things that specific ancestors have enjoyed. Unless you are addressing that ancestor specifically, pretty much any ancestor that enjoys that offering will probably come for it. But if you are sort of addressing that one ancestor specifically, I would recommend that you check whether through divination, whether they are a, if, I mean, for cultures that don't believe in reincarnation, it's a moot point. But for people who do believe in reincarnation, you want to check to see if that particular soul their spirit has reincarnated or is now a spirit a higher spirit and this and in terms of reincarnation we don't believe that everyone reincarnates forever they reincarnate in a physical form until they're done and then they basically then live lives as spirits and then they basically then you know ascend what they're where they're supposed to ascend to but if they are in the form of a spirit a helping spirit not necessarily shamanic spirit but in an ancestral helping spirits then they are watching over the family, they're guiding the family, they're, you know, helping to answer prayers, then that's, you know, the spirit that you want to, you know, help and provide offerings for and such as that. As a fun fact, it's pretty much guaranteed that anyone who has shamanic spirits and is a a practice as a shaman, they are living their last physical life. Because part of the kind of innate contract, especially in traditional societies, is when after you finish serving as a shaman then after you pass away you then have to become or if things work out well for you you become a shamanic spirit to the next generation of shamans and that's you know the cycle that goes on so that's why people like they don't even need to check to give offerings to an ancestor who was a shaman because they're they, they're done so you kind of know they won't be reincarnated but for someone who wasn't a shaman generally we would recommend that you check to see if they are now an ancestral spirit or if, if they have reincarnated.
0: seems like some people, when they do try to connect with their ancestors, there's just some that just are not available. Like just they're not, nobody's there. And that may be a reason. So, so if you are on this path, does that mean you're not going to be incarnated again if everything goes well? Yeah,
2: pretty much. Like, unless I really, you know, F things up.
0: There's still time to do that, David. (laughs)
2: Yeah. But basically means that like under, under what's supposed to happen, I won't reincarnate again. I will have to be a spirit for the next shaman.
0: How does that feel?
2: I mean, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's fun. People have all in the past have been like, oh, you're such an old soul. And I'm like, yeah, I'm at the last one. (laughs) So, you know, it's (laughs) assuming I have lived good lives, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's just moving on to the next thing. So, I mean, that's, that's how I see it I mean it's funny because we're, we're, we're talking to each other as you know spiritual practitioners people you know within witchcraft and such so there is a belief in reincarnation but I feel like if you ask anyone who's like a Christian then it's not something they've ever thought about so you
1: know for them that does it. it's um, like oh yeah when I die I'm done you know yeah yeah, yeah. we're like I always feel like I'm, I'm like if I have to have at least as many lives as a cat, I mean, come on. No. <laughs> I always feel like I'm ready to be done with this. <laughs> Except that
0: I don't think I was born a shaman. <laughs> I think I would know by now. Guess I'm gonna have to do it again.
2: <laughs> well, you know, the idea, if things are going right, is every lifetime is better than the previous one, right? Yeah, you know, it's in a way, it's part of growing up.
0: Yeah. So in terms of like practical things for like average part time, witch for people who are who this is not their life path, is there any practical advice from, from your perspective of how people can take good care of their energy and how people can take care of themselves? And also when is it time to go and get like a professional to help?
2: Well, I mean, I guess using Asian terminology a bit, we we generally say, try to live a life of merits. So basically what that means is, if we talk about the concept of karma, it's a little different from, I think, what most people in the West think about it. It's not so much, oh, you do something good, something good will happen to you. It's not that straightforward. It's more of like, we almost describe it as a bank account or I guess like even a credit card accounts basically you put more into it then more is owed to you as opposed to if you keep you know borrowing from it then it's it's expected that you have to pay it back at some point so basically when we say live a life of merits it's we're living a life of you know doing things for the world it could be acts of you know like a charity it could be doing spiritual work it could even be doing things like meditation giving offerings you know helping your community having compassion and this way it's almost like you're you're putting out so much for the world that the world kind of owes you back and that's how we see karma and so merits actually help accumulate that you know good karma to come your way whereas if you do something it's not supposed to it's not really doing harm to people it's more of doing things for selfish means if and it's and not saying that it's not it's bad to be selfish sometimes we do need to be selfish we're just kind of just you know checking that balance right so you know it's fine to take self-care but the reason why people say if you you know hurt someone you get hurt back is because when you do hurt someone it's actually us we see that as a selfish action where you're basically you're hurting someone for your own like transitory emotional benefit. That's mm-hmm. it. So And so in this case, you're basically, now you owe the world something and the world's going to get it from you one way or another. So we say live a life of merits that way. It's actually, by living a life of merits and accumulating merits, you do improve your karma. You improve the karmic situation for your family, for your descendants, as well as for your ancestors. And if essentially by accumulating... Good merits. This actually helps pave the way for your own spirit, your own soul, to then move on to other things, even after your own death. So I think the merit, the term merit, is actually more of a Buddhist concept originally, but it's basically the idea that as long as you you live a life of merit, you you give offerings, you regularly cleanse yourself, you have compassion for other people. It's it helps open the way to sort of the next opportunities and it actually helps a lot of people don't know this it actually does help heal any ancestral traumas that you have as well because essentially if your ancestors are in a place where they are trapped obviously you're not going to be working with them as a helping spirit because they can't help themselves but your own acts of merit actually do translate across the bloodline in both directions so in, in that sense it does help. And we we see, you know, spiritual activity of doing, you know, rituals and, you know, doing offerings that actually helps accumulate great merit as well. There, there's almost a joke within East Asia that's almost tries to like calculate it. Like every time you say a mantra is this much merit, every time you hit the bell, <laughs> it's this much merit. It's like plus one, plus one, plus one. It's kind of hilarious. But I mean, yeah, that, that's kind of the general idea. It's it's a concept that's a little bit hard to translate into English because there isn't really vocabulary for it. I think people have tried to tra- translate the concept, but it's basically, you know, that act of, you know, service of compassion and of, you know, and of spiritual work. Like it's kind of all of that together. And then of course, again, cleansing yourself so that there won't be anything attached to you that's blocking you from anything as well. So in terms of the practical day-to-day, <laughs> that actually, and I think I joked about this on the That which Like the podcast, where I, I feel like I don't do that much you know, spell work because I think the amount of you know cleansing and offerings that I do, it kind of almost creates a a pretty good life where I don't need to act, resort to magic to ask for that much. I mean, giving offerings, tending to the ancestral lines, you know, just tending to your spirits, you know, all that good stuff.
0: It seems like by doing the offerings and the cleansings, you're just sort of creating the conditions Yeah. so that like things can line up for you in your life and things can go more smoothly and, and stuff.
2: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Yes.
0: You know, there's so much discussion and awareness around ancestral healing. And I really like the way that you're talking about, you know, by living a life of merit, you are healing the ancestral line, you're paving the way and sowing seeds for future future generations. How do you see this conversation right now, where we're at right now with all of these people trying to do ancestral work? What are your observations around that?
2: You know, it's kind of funny. I actually had this discussion with a friend of mine. Actually, I consider her to be an elder as well. But when people have come up to her with saying the concept of you know ancestral healing or healing the ancestors she actually got angry she she was like that's the most ridiculous thing i've ever heard if we have the power to heal them why are we praying to them for things because <laughs> in her mind she was like no the, we don't heal the ancestors the ancestors heal us because that's why we pray to them but then i think after she thought about it more she was like okay if the ancestors you know had problems there's nothing directly we can do to help them other than merits, because merits is actually us creating conditions that will benefit the ancestors, but we we don't have the power directly to like heal the ancestors themselves. We'll have power to heal our descendants, but not the power to heal ancestors. The best we can do is by living a, a life of merits, we contribute to the karmic conditions that will then benefit our ancestors. So that's kind of where, and, and I think traditionally that is kind of the mindset as well. When she heard the concept at first, she thought of it as like this, this is such huge hubris. Like, like what what who are we to have power over our ancestors? But it's but I think it comes down to the fact that it's not so much that we are directly healing the ancestors, it's we're creating the the karmic conditions that will then, you know like be passed on to our ancestors for their benefit.
0: Yeah, I think you're bringing up a really interesting point because on one hand, it seems like there are folks that are trying to heal ancestral trauma because it's still in them and they're trying to heal themselves and and the results of the ancestral trauma. But then I feel like there's other people who are afraid to do work with their ancestors because they feel like that they are now responsible for healing their ancestors. Mm -hmm. And that seems like incredibly daunting to be like, oh my gosh, I have to heal my ancestors. Mm -hmm
2: at the end of the day it's it's healing yourself right because as yeah. cheesy as it is to say you know that like if we carry the blood of our ancestors that in a way they are within us as well so at the end of the day it's more about healing ourselves and by resolving within ourselves it can then translate to the ancestors but we can't we can't think about healing the ancestors themselves in a vacuum that's what healing to the ancestors is more of a side effect of what we should already be doing for ourselves
0: yeah that's well said Mm. very well said yeah i'm thinking about what you're saying about people's ancestral blood living in them the traumas the good things and stuff and i'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about turning that into something good you know and the, your perspective on that, because there's like healing the bad stuff, and then there's also turning the bad stuff into something useful, into medicine, sometimes is what people call it. Is there a perspective around that that you you utilize for your own work?
2: Well, you know, that's a tough question. For my own, I'm actually not too sure, but there's actually a funny example from my friend who she actually said that the one spirit that she had, the cursing spirit, that was actually the result of another shaman lineage trying to curse her family. And it basically, it, it cursed them by basically attaching that spirit to their bloodline. So it cursed multi-generationally. But then their family of shamans were able to convince that spirit, okay, since it's impossible to remove you, like let's renegotiate instead of having you curse us. Why don't you curse on our behalf? So you're still doing cursing work, just not on us. And we'll give you offerings and you you stay with our bloodline, curse others. It's 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 fun, it's a funny story. But um in general, in terms of like turning something that was, you know, traumatic into something good, in a way, what that does it, if you're able to, you know, relieve the trauma that's <laughs> tied to the bloodline, essentially it's almost like. If you're able to successfully heal from it, it does develop a resiliency within the next generation of bloodlines against that trauma. So that would be the benefit of essentially turning something bad into something good. One thing I will say, and this is the belief within our tradition, I think a lot of people will disagree with this, is that we believe that a bloodline only consists of what we say nine generations in the past and in the future because beyond nine generations you will have you know mixed with so many other peoples that the blood will become different to the point that we even say that the ancestors will be different because it will have become different blood by then and unfortunately we actually you know all going off a little side tangent the reason we say that shamanic lineages can die within the family is if there's been nine generations of non-practice and so then the, the ancestral shamanic spirits will have, you know, won't recognize the descendants same or they'll basically go off on their own to whatever. So we actually say that technically all ancestral curses will also only last nine generations and all ancestral traumas will only last nine generations. But of course, we don't want to, you know, wait three gener- three to six generations after ourselves for it to be healed. We want to heal it now for ourselves. So yeah. that's, that's sort of the benefit of, you know, healing traumas for ourselves. And we can then at least guarantee that the next nine generations after us will benefit from the work that we do.
0: I really appreciate these perspectives. It's so interesting. And I assume all a lot of this or all of this is in your book. When does your book come out? It comes out in May. Oh, May. May. That's right. It's coming out in May. Okay. And it's wiser books, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So people listening do pre-order or Order your copy of *Spirit Voices* by David Shee. David, are you doing like sessions with people now? I think your bio said that you were you're doing a little bit, but not a little bit open for business. Yeah.
2: So yeah, I mean, right now I'm actually extremely busy because in addition, full time work, part time grad school, book, other things. So right now I'm not as available. I think I only reserve doing like you know spiritual you know, like readings and stuff for, you know, people that I know, but usually, but, you know, later in the year, you know, after things settle down, I'll probably be more available for, you know, at least doing readings for people. Yeah. But for right now, it's, it's not that open right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So where can people find you if they want to see what, what you're doing and, and what's going yeah. on with the book and everything like that?
2: Yeah. So I'm technically on both Facebook and Instagram, but I, as you've probably seen, I'm much more active on Instagram right now. Part of it is for, you know, book promotion. So yeah. people can find me on Instagram at David davidjshi311. It's the letter J. So D-A-V-I-D-J-S-H-I 311.
0: We'll have that link on the podcast notes. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much for visiting with us and telling us your story and just really enlightening us about shamanism. It has been such a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you coming on.
2: Yeah, this this was a great conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much. I learned a lot. (laughs) So I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Divinely Curious. Connect with us on social media and tell us what you thought about today's episode. You can find Emily at Emily Rose Divination or on her website EmilyRoseDivination.com. You can also find me, Heather, on social media at Lovejoy Lightwork, or you can visit my website LovejoyLightwork.com. Thanks for listening, and stay curious.